Hi, everybody. I'm Mary Ann Barrett. I'm the Louise Solheim Professor here in the Cronkite School. Um, and it's my pleasure to serve as the host for this evening as my former PhD students <laughs> join us. I cover both ends of the spectrum. Um, so I'm really excited about uh, hosting tonight's presentation um, because I, d I think it does one um, of a couple of things. But what's particularly exciting about it, I think, is that it gives us a sense of all the fa among the many th fantastic things that goes on in the Cronkite School. Some of what we do is really visible, right? Cronkite News, all the professional programs, all the associations that we make with that. But some of what we do is less visible initially, and, but nevertheless really tied to what the Cronkite School is all about. And that includes advancing scholarship. Um, so tonight we have uh, four of our assistant professors. Um, and the other great thing about what they do is that even though on its face it seems like what they do is very different from one another, what they have in common is the fact that they're looking at various journalism practices. They're looking at the intersection between scholarship and journalism practice. And most importantly, they're trying to investigate really important questions that can help journalists do their jobs better and that can also help us to understand more about journalism's role in, in the world and um, with uh, a couple of cases, particularly Dr. Squan and uh, Hussein, they're looking at things from more of a communication perspective, and uh, and uh, Dr. Kwan uh, Dr. looks at things like the dark web, and what Dr. Hussein does is looks at communication and nostalgia, particularly as a tool for communication. And what Dr. Hussein does has um, very uh, direct um, implications for student success. Um, one of the things that the Cronkite School is known for, um, and that is one of its top priorities. So um, we're going to hear from them about their research projects, and then there'll be time. I'll ask them a couple of questions just to kind of get things started, um, and then there'll be time for you to ask them questions as well. But um, as they're talking, thinking, be thinking about how what they do relates to one another, how it relates to journalism. Um, and uh, so then you, when the time comes for uh, a little bit of Q&A, you'll have some um, things to ask. So I'm going to introduce them, and then uh, we'll go down the, the row, and uh, they'll do the presentations in the same order that I introduced them. I'm going to go through all the introductions first. So to my immediate left is Dr. Uh, Monica Chatter. Um, she received her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, and she joined the Cronkite School in 2014. Uh, she's taught a variety of multimedia classes to both undergraduate and graduate students. Um, her research focuses primarily on digital media and entrepreneurial journalism, um, so she's going to be talking a little bit about that, particularly what she refers to as hyperlocal hyper -local news and nonprofit news. Um, before going back to school uh, and getting her PhD, she spent more than a decade reporting from India for the BBC and the Indian Express, um, which is one of the country's largest English language newspapers. Um, in over 10 years of reporting, she produced multimedia stories for online, radio, print, and television. And at the BBC, she served as news correspondent and a research consultant in India. Uh, to her left is Syed Ali Hussein, um, who earned his PhD from my alma mater, Michigan State, um, in 2018. Um, and he specializes, as I said before, in the use of nostalgic emotions for health communications, particularly uh, in their use uh, for easing depression. Um, he was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to pursue his master's degree at Michigan State um, before he began, he began his PhD program. At Michigan State, he taught courses on theory and methods of persuasion and social influence. 
and on the use of mobile phones for public health. And before that, he, he worked on numerous health communications campaigns for Save the Children and other uh, non-governmental organizations. Uh, Dr. Hazel Kwan received her PhD from the State University of New York at Buffalo, and she joined the Cronkite School in 2016. Um, we were able to recruit her, we're proud to say, from ASU School of, Be of Social and Behavioral Science, where she still uh, does some work. She serves on a search committee for that school, um, even as we speak. Um, her research interests are audience engagement in social news, online emotional uh, contagion, which in some ways intersects with what Dr. Um, Hussein does, um, and network social influence on user collaboration and collective action. Um, she's done a lot of work on hate speech, particularly on the web. Um, her work is interdisciplinary, um, often, also, often involving information system scientists, computer scientists, and mathematicians. Many of us in the Cronkite School do quantitative research, but I think Dr. Kwan is the only one who actually works with mathematicians and <laughs> computer scientists. Um, and she was recently awarded a research grant by the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, Seda Reed, um, to my far left, is a veteran sports reporter and editor who specializes in teaching and researching sports journalism practices. And as a journalist, she served on the sports desk for uh, newspapers in Illinois, Minnesota, and South Carolina. Um, she earned her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And in her dissertation, she analyzed American sports journalists' conflicting roles as journalists, community members, and sports enthusiasts. How do you go from, I'm a sports fan, I'm a sports journalist, not a sports fan, I think is um, what she's done some work on. Um, and she was also interested in sports journalists' interactions with whistleblowers. Um, more, more recently, she's been looking at labor practices among sports journalists, especially the role of freelancers. Um, she's published refereed articles in several leading academic journals on sports media, including the International Journal of Sport Communication and Journal of Sports Media. So now that you've committed all of that to memory, <laughs> I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Chad, who's going to tell us a little bit about uh, the specifics of her, her research, her current research. Okay. Um, yes? All right. Perfect. Okay, clearly better conversation happening there, but um, I'll get started with mine. Um, I had a student in class this semester, Michael Lencia, who's up there, um, and he actually asked me, so what do you do in research? And um, I spent five minutes trying to explain to him, um, and I'm gonna spend the same five minutes trying to explain to you about what it is that I do here. Um, essentially, it's um, an interaction between journalism practices and technology, that's, that's my forte. Um, but in terms of journalism sites, I look at hyperlocal, absolutely local community digital news sites, um, the ones that have started independently, for-profit and not-for-profit, um, and I examine how technology is influencing the way they do journalism, and, by, and to that extent, how is it influencing grassroots journalism, or is it influencing grassroots journalism, and that's what this study will kind of show you. Um, this paper is local at scale. It's actually done in collaboration with a PhD student here, Jay Alabaster, who's currently pursuing his research in Japan. Exciting stuff. Um, and Dr. Bill Silcock, who you know as assistant dean um, for research. Um, and what we wanted to look at with this study is essentially what are, uh, what is automated journalism and how are hyperlocal newsrooms using it? Automated journalism, how many of you are familiar with it? Do you know what it is? Okay, well, this is what it is. Um, it is use of algorithms to, um, uh, that converts data into narrative without, uh, with very little human intervention, essentially. So you've got software programs that have been written up to basically write up narrative based on the information that you put in it. Um, and the, these companies here 
are using it at such an advanced level that they can now write their sports stories and their business stories without any human intervention. They just put the information and the stories written. Is your job in danger? I think so. Um, but there's hope. Um, anyway, so that is automated journalism, and that is what I wanted to explore. This is probably the next frontier that uh, is going to challenge journalism and its practices. Um, and I wanted to see what was happening at a grassroots level, especially since local news is already in trouble. We know that local newspapers are shutting down. They don't have enough funding. Um, people are going to digital sites, social media, to basically get their information. And here are these digital local independent startups that are trying to compete in that open market. And now we have this technology that a lot of bigger news organizations are using. And I wanted to explore what do local newsrooms think of it. Um, and so how automated journalism works, the process is kind of really simple. Um, I've laid that out for you here. Essentially, it's, it's looking at contextual data. It looks at what are um, the basic philosophy of automated journalism is this. You write up the program, you set some of the rules, and then the program works automatically by itself. Um, how well the program works and how well your narrative works is based on the rules that you put into the program. Um, but basically, there is human intervention to the extent of writing up the program and putting the rules in it. And after that, the computer pretty much does its thing. Um, it can be as advanced to the extent that it can publish it without any human intervention, or there might be a human person who's checking the copy to make sure that everything is um, just as a narrative should flow, and then publish it on, um, um, on the website. Now, the benefits of automated news for local news sites, and I'm going to stand up partly because I can barely see the screen up here, is essentially you can generate more news but use less money, right? You just invest in a program and then that's it. The program does its thing. Uh, the program doesn't say no to news stories that people tend to say no to. You just tell the program, do this boring story, and it does it. Um, it provides information very quickly, um, which is basically just following the rules, and the narrative is done within seconds, minutes, maybe. Um, but Associated Press has already reported on how it, re it just pushes out thousands of business reports and local sports stories based on automated narrative storytelling. Um, so they have automated processes doing those stories for them. Um, and basically, um, it will generate business and sports stories, which is where there's more advertising, right? So it's really useful for that too, which is something that local news sites su uh, suffer from, uh, which is lack of revenue. And so automated uh, processes have those advantages if used in a newsroom. What we wanted to look at was uh, to what extent were they used in hyperlocal media, to what extent were, um, what, what were the producers who created these software programs thinking about it, um, and basically what were the bigger newsrooms thinking about these automated processes. So sort of trying to figure out how is this conversation happening, because what the conversation that is happening determines the kind of journalism that's going to happen, and it determines how reporters are going to use it, determines how you're going to um, apply it in your news and storytelling. And so basically, the producers and the bigger media companies essentially said they can assign stories to reporters that only reporters can do. And what I mean by that are the more investigative stories, the ones that require a lot of digging, the ones that require a little bit of creativity, the ones that are not just simply straightforward. And that's what I mean by there is hope. So even if these automated processes are there, um, the kind of narrative, the kind of creativity that a human can bring into a new story, a machine just can't. And so, um, so that's what they, um, that's what the bigger newsrooms think, that it frees up the reporter's time to pursue other stories. And then they're faster than humans. And so, for example, business and sports stories, which have very definite interest, um, machines can do really fast and uh, push them out to their target audience. So you don't have to worry about a delay in writing those kind of stories. But where the local folks were concerned, they basically said, 
we know the community, we're the ones who live in it, and how can a machine replace that kind of local news storytelling? Um, we understand the nuances, the subtleties that our community um, is about. Um, the people know that we are the ones behind the news stories. They can come to us, they can talk to us, they can interact with us. We cannot have software that takes over. So we're, we're sort of seeing that local newsrooms are resistant to the idea of technology. Now, where have we heard that before? Journalists are so open to embracing technology. I mean, um, but basically, when it comes to automated storytelling, local newsrooms just aren't there yet. And then transparency at every level, right? They, they want their people to come in. They want to know who's the one who's writing the story. And so you can, I'm out of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, um, so basically, they, wa um, they want to be able to tell who's writing the news story, because that way they can also get people to invest in the news stories, right? So that's how they get their advertising. That's how they get their revenue. And I'm going to speed through this. Um, the common opinions between the two was that the software still needs to be improved. It's not there yet in terms of writing the narrative. You need better data sets because in the end, remember, there is human intervention required in terms of the data and the information that you're going to put in it. And if the quality of that information that you put in it isn't great, then the story that's going to come out from the program isn't great either. Um, and as I mentioned, useful for some kind of stories. So we sell sports and business, but not useful for all kinds of stories. Um, so quickly moving forward, local news entrepreneurs still caught up in traditional views, not embracing technology as quickly as they should, and I fear that they will be caught on the back foot yet again. Um, and the rest of it I can discuss more because I have my, uh, <laughs> my moderator looking at me saying I'm out of time. But if you have any further questions, just email me and I'll gladly go over this research with you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay. Dr. Hussain, you've got your seven, eight minutes. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Marianne, for a very kind introduction. So uh, I will be talking about social media and emotional health. Apparently, um, there is a lot of debate around it, that because of social media, there is an increase in um, depression, mental health issues, compassion fatigue, and other emotional issues and problems. Um, the first thing that I wanted to show you that uh, try not to put everything in one big box, that overall social media is bad. That's not the case. It's always extremes. There are certain social media sites which are good and helpful and others which are not. And within certain social media sites, it may be different for a different audience. So looking into this graph, you can see here that YouTube overall has a very positive impact on people's mental health. Why? Because of, the, because of our ability to watch videos which help us in our education and in, in our work. On the other hand, Instagram, Snapchat are the ones which have the most negative impact. And I will go deeper into this in the next one, why it is. Twitter and Facebook are somewhere in the middle in the moderate. They do have some negative impact also. Moving onwards, uh, talking particularly about the Instagram and Facebook, as you can see, on the left side, there are the negative impacts of Facebook as well as Instagram, which are almost the same. Anxiety, depression, loneliness is a less for Facebook. Um, body image, FOMO. Um, do you know what is FOMO? Anybody can tell me what's FOMO? Yeah, fear of missing out. So this is one of the big things with these social media sites. Bullying is also a big one. Um, body image also. So you can see here the things are, are not exactly wrong, but there are certain positive impacts of social media sites. For example, both Facebook and Instagram, high self-expression, high emotional support, and a lot of awareness and self-identity. So this is how the things are. It's a mixed bag. <clears throat> so my research was primarily about how people who have depression, they express their emotions and feelings through photographs and through images, not through text. So in depression, there is a lot of narrative that can be around it, people's experiences. But because of a stigma, many people do not talk about it. So but when I looked into Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, I found these images. And as you can see from this image, it's a very revealing image. It's a very telling image 
there are a lot of things that we can talk about it, such as a lot of legs and the facial expressions and the color of dress and the hands are tied and all these things. So I interviewed people who have depression and I asked them, what does that mean? And through their narrative, I figured out a lot of the things that people are generally not able to express in their daily life. Um, <clears throat> the method with which we do this research, there are multiple methods. The, what I did was an interview. Um, and within interview, it was a photo elicitation methodology in which you talk to someone through photographs. Now imagine a person like me who don't know the interviewee who I'm talking to going through moderate levels of depression, which is particularly high, and asking him, tell me about yourself. Tell me about how was your week. Why are you feeling depressed? The chances are they will not open up. But through the photo elicitation methodology of visual research, what happened is that I always ask them, these are all the images from Tumblr, Instagram, Pinterest, pick one image and tell me about that image. What do you see in this image? And what, tell me, give me an example, tell me a story. And through this, after 15 minutes, I was so warmed up with them, then they were telling me not about the images, but about themselves. So this is a good research methodology when you have to talk about things which have a lot of stigma around it, taboo around it. Um, these are a few other images that I wanted to share with you. I think these images are important because of the power of expression. So if you see on the image on your left, the one that talks about this, how society responds to people who have depression and how I actually feel when I'm going through depression. And one of the important things is the, the one in pink, which is nothingness. Nothingness is a very important emotion which is hard to put into words, but it has serious implications. So when I did this research, um, my question, so every research has some research questions and a hypothesis. So my only research question was, what is the narrative behind these images? And I found that answer. But one thing else happened, which as you can see, are the unintended consequences of research. And what you find in this is that, notice the uh, linguistic analysis of these interviews. So participants, while talking about the images, felt sad, but they, all, but they also felt a lot of the positive emotions like pride, excitement, compassion, and happiness. This is the power of expression. When people are given an opportunity to talk about, they feel better, which is very important for mental health. Uh, if I may have a quick time check. Yeah, just a couple minutes. You have a couple minutes. Thank you. So the next important thing I wanted to do in my research was what can I do about it? So because I am in health communication, so I design communication messages to persuade people to go and seek help. This is my imagine. So, Whenever you do this, you have to have some kind of an emotional context to it. So for example, a lot of the advertisements you see on television have a fear appeal, or a disgust appeal, or a guilt appeal, or a shame appeal. Any kind of these emotional appeals to persuade people to go and buy something or get something. So I use nostalgic emotional appeal because it's a positive emotional appeal. And the reason why I use nostalgic emotional appeal because it's very persuasive and powerful in advertising sector. If you, look, if you think about yourself, there are a lot of things that you buy in your daily life just because you used it when you were young, in your good old days, when you were in high school or when you were in school or even before that. And I, test, I wanted to test if I design a communication message for people of depression to go and seek help through nostalgia, how will that look like? And that was an experimental research. Um, so as you can see, I created two videos of two minutes each we, when we do research, we do an experiment in a control group. In the experiment group, you can see the nostalgic one. In the beginning, there are nostalgic images, but in the control group, there are no nostalgic images, so that we can differentiate and measure the difference. And what I found out, so you don't have to go in detail about this mediation analysis, but what this, what this is telling is look at the green arrows. It's, it's showing you what works in what situation and context. What it is showing is that people who watched the nostalgic video, they had more positive emotions that in turn predicted their positive attitude about going to the counseling center, which in turn predicts their high intention to seek counseling, which is not there when we talked about uh, the control video. So why I'm showing you this image is only to show you that when you go and talk to um, 
counseling center or talk to someone else that to persuade them that you should have this, you should use these messages, you have to show them data. And through data like this, we can then provide evidence that there is impact. So in my final uh, slide, I wanted to show you that one of the things I figured out when I was talking with people with depression is that even if they are convinced, they are, they are not going to seek help, like not going to meet a counselor. Because there are other issues. There is health insurance, and there is a long waiting line, and they have never been to a counseling center, and so many other logistics issues. So I wanted to give people an idea of how a counseling experience looks like. So I created a counseling experience in virtual reality. So how many of you have used these virtual reality headsets for games and stuff like that? Yeah, a couple of you. So you can see how immersive the whole experience can be. So I designed a counseling experience in which a participant who has depression, he wears it and he sort of finds himself in a room where he's talking with other people who have depression. In reality, there is nobody in the room. But this gives that visceral feeling of how helpful it will be if they actually go and seek help. So I primarily end here. I talked about three researches. One was about visual narratives of depression. Second was emotional appeals to design public service announcements for mental health. And third one was to use technology for uh, persuading people to go and seek help. Happy to answer any questions at the end. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I'm Hazel Khan. I'm an assistant professor. Oh, thank you. At the Cronkite here. Um, yeah, um, I teach online courses as a part of a digital audience program, so I don't really have many chances to meet students in person. So I'm really great that um, this event you know, makes me meet you guys in person. Um, who am I as a researcher? Um, simply speaking, I'm a digital community scholar. And I have a quite a few um, projects going on. So where should I? OK. <laughs> so I have a quite a few projects going on. So instead of you know, speaking about a specific project, I thought I might just talk about what I do generally as a digital you know, um, media scholar, digital community scholar. And in case if you want to talk more about digital media, digital culture, digital communities, you know, just come and visit me, all right? Um, so uh, my like overarching um, big question is how our social, political, cultural condition of our society impact the way that we engage, the way that we practice in digital spaces, and vice versa. How what we do in online spaces influences the shaping of our current political, cultural, or um, social conditions of our democracy. Um, to speak more simply, it's about assessing um, conversational health or communicative health or informational health of our digital life. Um, I use lots of data, I you know, use lots of methods, but I'm not going to talk about that because I know that I don't have much time. <laughs> um, so um, there are so many different ways that we can characterize um, our digital culture. Um, but for me, what's the most interesting element of our digital culture is this tension between the desire to express ourselves, the desire that we want to disclose ourselves. How many of us use social media? It's such a visible part of our digital culture, which means that we have this desire, and technology enables us to engage into networked feasible practices. I term it networked feasibility. But the opposite side of our digital culture is our another desire or need to interact with others in a more hidden way in a more anonymous way. If you engage into a little bit sensitive topic, you might want to talk about that, share that, but you know, without really disclosing who you are, right? If you are engaging in offensive commenting, for example, in YouTube, um, some people do based on the real name, but others just you know, making all those you know, bad words and cursing words against each other, but they never disclose themselves, right? So there's a tension between these two com uh, competing forces. One is the natural visibility, and the other is the online anonymity. 
So my whole uh, research projects are sort of um, in this continuum of these con uh, competing uh, forces. Um, more gearing toward the visible part of our digital culture, I study um, how our social media and digital platforms reinforce our political collective actions, how uh, we engage in civic engagements. So some of the research that I've done, um, I've studied several social movements, and then how try to see how social media promotes or constraints or propagates social movement ideas. Um, very recently, I studied nationwide survey data to understand how rural community and urban communities are different in terms of their use of social media and how that affects their engagements in civic life. Um, another long-lasting research question that I have is a social contagion. So how contents become viral in the online space? How uh, people, um, um, people's behavior or ideas become contagious to one another? That's another uh, question that I have. Um, so that's more about feasible part of our digital culture. But then there is an anonymous part of our digital culture. Um, for there, I've been studying about antisocial behaviors online. And then very recently, uh, Marian briefly talked about that. Um, I've got a um, three-year grant from the Department of Defense uh, to study about much understudied area, which is the dark web. I believe that we've heard the word at least. Right? Have you ever heard about Bitcoin? crypto market, you know, those are kind of things that uh, are all happening in dark web. Um, so these are sort of the anonymous part of the digital culture that I'm studying. And um, just a small snapshot here, digital audience research. Um, digital community researcher, we talk a lot, a lot about surface web. We talk about Facebook, we talk about Instagram, but as you see here, it's a really, you know, a bit boring but conventional, typical um, analogy of our web, but the deep inside of our web, there are the you know parts of the digital practices that are hidden from our sites. Um, those are deep web, dark web. And it's a much understudied area, and I'm trying to understand how these um, um, crypto market users interact with one another to try to make sense of the world, and then also uh, collectively solve the problem when they face in a crisis moment. Um, still, it's a recent project I'm still working on, but I'm pretty excited about that. Um, yeah, so these are sort of the uh, projects that I'm doing as a researcher, and of course, because I'm an academic researcher, so my primary goal is to advance the social knowledge about this cultural understanding, right? But at the same time, um, understanding and advancing these knowledges have a practical implication. For example, if you study about how the network feasibility influence collective actions and um, civic engagement, now you can talk about what can be the solution to build the community in a better way. You know, what can be the solution to grow our audiences? And also, if we understand a little bit more about anti-social activities in an anonymous spaces, now you can talk about is there any cybersecurity or cyber intelligence implications? So that can be another more practical aspect of the research. That's it. <laughs> All right. So. My research project that I've been working on um, really for a few years now, it continues to grow, is the role of freelancing in sports journalism. And I originally was interested in this because, as you can see from this article as the example, I wanted to see how freelancing, full-time jobs, how the industry was changing, what journalists were doing. and. At first, I was taken aback by how article after article that I was seeing in the popular press would say things about freelancing that did not line up with my interactions with freelancers in the sports department. And part of me thought, oh, maybe it's because these are more geared toward the newsroom and the sports department tends to be different. However, as I started doing a deeper dive into it, I began noticing some other differences too, particularly some underlining assumptions about journalists in not just the popular press, but in scholarly literature. The big one being what makes a quote unquote real journalist. Sometimes this was defined as ethics. Well, we're different from others because we do X, Y, Z, things like that. 
But the unspoken assumption that I kept coming up against in scholarly research was that a real journalist is someone who has a full-time job at a news organization, and that they want a full-time job at a news organization. And this came up again and again. And it got to the point where I knew that if I was going to see the term freelancer, it was probably going to be in some negative way. Like, oh, that's atypical, or that's precarious, or it's journalism without journalists when we get rid of these full-time jobs and hire freelancers. Now, some of this comes down to it being difficult to research freelancing because they are private contractors there's not like some glorious directory where we can contact all these freelancers and survey them, talk to them about their experiences in the field. So it's easier, far easier, to do studies on full-time journalists. But also there's a historic wall between the editorial side and the financial side. So it's actually been taboo for quite a long time to talk to journalists about going off on their own, creating their starting startups, because that would mean that that wall would be coming down. So I started digging into this, trying to figure out, okay, who are the freelancers? Why are they in this? And I found information generally about they're mostly women, here's their age, how many hours they're working, how much money they're making. And right away I knew, wow, this is very different than the sports journalism freelancers. There clearly is a gap in the literature of what we know about sports journalists who are doing this. And as a result, what we believe we know about the field is inaccurate. Because sports journalism is predominantly a white male field. All right, so that was a big one. That led me to wonder, okay, well, what are we missing in terms of how we think the field is, is being covered? Because I did a pilot study in 2014 that found that actually a large majority of, excuse me, 39% of newsrooms, sports departments, and newspapers in North Carolina were run by freelancers. And these editors said, these people are actually a huge part of the labor force because if we are trying to cover 20 football teams on a Friday night, we're going to need to hire these stringers to cover these things. And it's the stringers who are let go when the economic belts need to be tightened, not the full-timers. Oh, did that not? There we go. So I wondered, who become freelancers and why? And does this mean because this group is missing from the research that we know about sports journalism, sports journalism, excuse me, does that mean there are more women doing this than we previously thought? Um, so I did a study last summer that I'm going to be taking a deeper dive into this summer because, of course, more questions than answers came up. Um, so I recruited 50 freelance sports journalists on Upwork, and the demographics did align with the full-time national statistics. However, there quickly, quickly became things that surprised me. Primarily how they averaged about six years as being sports journalists, in the, as freelancers, but on average, they wanted to do this 13 more years. This wasn't just something they were doing in order, you know, before they could find a full-time job. They were in this, like they wanted to do this long-term. Um, several had jobs other than freelancing. Most had full-time jobs. Most had full-time jobs not in journalism. And you can see the list I have here. We have accounting, business, consulting, and even one gasket maker. Um, so what I discovered as I was doing this that people had motivations all across the board. Some of them just wanted to get their foot in the door. They're like, yes, I do want a full-time job in this. Others wanted to have enough work get their name out there, be able to work full-time solely as a freelancer. Others wanted to create startups. They saw a hole of ways that sports was not being covered, and they wanted to do that. They also felt very underprepared, because in journalism school, they never talked about freelancing. It was just the assumption was you were going to be a full-time journalist. So that's what I'm going to be continuing this summer, is going more into the in-depth interviews, finding out their motivations, um, and, and how diverse this field really is, so we can be better uh, prepared in terms of what people actually want to do when they enter this field and how they can be more successful freelancers if that's what they decide to do. So 
Oh, thanks, thanks everybody. Uh, that was that was great. So I'm I'm going to ask uh, you to each answer in about a minute. Take a minute to tell tell us a little bit about how you came to do the project you just talked you just talked about and say that you've already mentioned that a little bit. And I think I'm going to go in actually reverse. Order. So maybe, say it if you could even back up a little bit more from the studies you talked about, about how you started to get interested in the research that you did with sports journalists and whistleblowers, for, for example, and then how that led you into other projects. Oh, goodness. Um, well, how much time? You have, you have a minute. Um, so, um, so the reason why I went to graduate schools because I was a sports journalist and I loved doing it, but I would see things happen in the field that I thought, I wonder why we do that, or we never talk about that in journalism school. So I didn't really know what the solutions were to that and I would ask people about it and no one really knew either. So that's why I decided to go back to school and to look at these challenges in the field. And so like with interactions with whistleblowers, um, I was curious how the role of fan and community member complicated that, that if you developed a good relationship with, say, you know, the local coach, you know, the football coach, who you're seeing all the time, year after year, how does that change information you receive about that coach that may not be very positive, especially if that's been a successful team, and you have to interact with these people in the community, you know, day after day, no matter what you write about them, um, and especially their own their own personal passion for, say, in that example, football. How does that affect um, what they would do? And what I found was that it really did seem to vary from situation to situation. That there were tons of, of things that would influence um, what what someone's decision would be there. But I did see that people who would, were older, and they've been doing this a lot longer made decisions quite differently than rookie sports journalists. They did not seem to be um, living as vicariously through the sports that they were covering. Um, they had a very different level of appreciation for the game that uh, was, I don't want to say disconnected, but different than, than the rookie sports journalists. So experience had a great deal to do with how they would interact with whistleblowers. Okay, thanks. Hazel. Um, I wasn't listening to Sarah's talk. I was thinking about what I should talk. <laughs> um, so I was trying to think, and um, um, when I was, I, I have my undergrad in journalism, and uh, I remember that um, I was a sophomore, and um, the professor posited this question, do you think television will win over the internet, or the internet will win the TV over the television? So basically, he was asking about the convergence between the mass media and the new technology, the computer. He didn't even say the word internet. He just said computer, right? Um, um, and then that actually was a really interesting question for me. And that time, I had no clue what that really means. It was really hard to imagine how computer and the television can be merged together. But uh, I think that's a starting point that I sort of became interested in, like, you know, how the internet sort of, you know, make an impact on our media landscape and at the same time our community life. I mean, without having media, you know, you cannot talk about democracy, you cannot really talk about the community life and, you know, the, the nation, notion of the nationality, stuff like that. Um, so that was, just, I think, beginning, you know, question of me as a future scholar, I was nerd from since when I was really young and I haven't really thought about doing a cooler stuff but just studying and reading and writing. Um, then, um, so that, uh, and then the, my first sort of the research area interest evolved into looking at this so-called social networking site. Back in early 2000s in Korea, we had a platform called the SciWorld. It's very strikingly similar to Facebook. The only difference was that it was based on the web 1.0, um, and uh, Facebook is based on web 2.0. Um, but the whole idea of uh, networking through the computer networks, and then uh, the whole this interconnectivity is not just from the sharing of the media content, but sharing of myself. The whole idea is strikingly similar to our social media concept. And that was the beginning uh, of my study and my research area. But then now you've been studying about you know, this visible part of social life 
in digital spaces for 10 years, more than 10 years. Now you know that this is just so small part of our digital culture. You need to understand hidden parts, and then that's how I sort of getting into more anti-sociality, um, more like hidden part of our digital social interactions. That has been within just a few years for now. Um, yes, I think that's how I, the research has been evolved. Okay. Thank you, Marina. I think it's a very important question. Um, the first thing is that there is a big need for mental health across the globe. For example, in my country, Pakistan, there are 3,000 psychiatrists for 180 million people. So from this, one can imagine that there are very few psychiatrists, there are very few counselors, there are very few therapists. There is very less help available for a huge majority of people who is constantly being exposed to a lot of things that is causing depression. So I was inspired by this scale of the problem. And um, I also found out that in the computer science department, like there are people who are making machine learning algorithms to understand these images, and that is not accurate. So as, as you can see from the image that I showed up there, if you show it to a computer or a robot or a machine, it will just say it's a woman, it's, there are legs and this is color, but what is the real essence behind it? A machine cannot tap into it without having some hu human interaction to it. So that is the computer-human interaction field that I was tapping into. And third thing is that there are, very, there are a lot of things that five years ago we, we thought it's fantasy, but now we are using them in many other ways. Chatbots is a very important thing for future. Chatbots are basically when you call a help like a, an airline, American airline or, or any, any other automated helpline, you first talk to a chatbot, a robot. And they are getting so good in it that sometimes you're not able to f figure out if you are talking to a real human being or a chatbot. So my future next step is to design chatbots for uh, counseling about mental health. To the extent that they have some help, that they can then f go further and, and have more help, seek more help. Thanks, Monica. Um, my research was, um, I got into local media primarily because of FOMO, um, or more like um, I've left local media, traditional media. Traditional media has left local media. Well, who are the people that are doing local media then? Who's come in my place and uh, what are they doing? Um, are they doing the same thing as me? Are they doing something different from me? And that's where I started with research related to understanding the journalistic practices that go on in digitally native independent news sites. Um, and slowly it moved on into trying to find a solution for local news. Um, understanding the business model, understanding the entrepreneurs, understanding the pressures that they face on a daily basis, understanding um, how they really try to report on their community, but their community just doesn't seem interested, and why would that be the case? Um, so through my research, um, I'm trying to figure out how can we find a sustainable model for local news? How can we save local news? So it's kind of like a curing cancer question in the journalistic context, which is, you know, I'm trying to find a cure for the demise of local news or the slow death of local news. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think technology will be a major part of the solution. I don't think it will be the solution. Um, but it will definitely play a major role, and I don't want local news to be caught on the back foot again like it was before. And that's primarily the purpose of my goal um, and of my research. Um, I share these findings with the industry in the hope that maybe there's something they'll take away from it um, and, um, and basically continue this. Um, and I just continue to study the, the subject that I do. Okay, so we've got about... 11 minutes, according to the, the clock for, for questions. So if you, if you have a question, if you want to step up to the microphone and pose it to one or more of the panelists. Okay, so I'll ask another question. So if you would each tell us a little bit about how your research intersects with your teaching. Um, Seda, I know it's it's a little more obvious for for you than maybe for for, for the others. Um, provides me with a lot of exciting stories to tell my students. Um, so since I work with 
sports journalism students who want to be sports journalists. Um, my research, I can directly apply it to the classroom. I can tell students about it, say what my experience was, what I saw as a sports journalist, but then also what I saw in the research that I didn't learn until I was in graduate school and then building from there that I wish I would have known when I was an undergrad. So it can come back to my classroom that way. And one of the projects you've done is actually modeled after what you do in your classroom, right? And uh, the act of learning that you do in the, in the classroom, right? Yes, that was at the, the 302 class. Do we have any 302 students out there? But, oh, okay. Several uh, who are going to be in 302. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, and it was just looking at the, um, the publications that students were signing up is not the word, um, that they were publishing at, because there's a publication requirement for that class, and looking at how that was changing over time, what kind of publications st students were going to, and how in the beginning students were rushing to the, the legacy media. They wanted to be AZ Republic. Um, they, wanted, you know, they wanted to be at newspapers, whereas now it's online only. That they're finding having a much easier time being published there, and just what, just elements of that trend over time and why that happened. Okay, Hazel? Do I have any students who is working on digital audience minor or no? <laughs> you may at the end. <laughs> you might have a chance to take my course sometime, or you might already have taken, I don't know. Um, so um, uh, the course that I'm teaching right now is called Digital Audience Research and Behavior. Um, because I'm a digital community researcher, it is inevitable to utilize data as very extensively, digital behavioral trace data. We call it observational studies, and they've talked about machine learning, computational stuff. That's what I'm actually using for my research purposes. I use lots of machine learning stuff to really get a, um, try to understand, make sense of like hundreds and millions of data. Um, in the, my digital audience research method course, I don't really teach about machine learning algorithm per se, but um, our social media analytics and social media monitoring, all those platforms are basically based on the machine learning algorithm. So, you know, having this you know, Beijing knowledge, I actually can teach, you know, my students, you know, okay, this type of, you know, like sentiment analysis, for example, how the computer does it, you know, you can have, you know, like rough idea, you know, that I can explain to my students. Um, so it's more like a methodological study uh, uh, and courses that I can utilize my knowledge that I gained from my research experiences. But at the same time, I've taught one time the course titled um, Digital Media, Technology, and Social Issues, and I learned from my student, actually Cronkite School does not have a science and technology journalism intensive programs. So my students actually got a, all these you know, interesting ideas how to expand um, these you know, current social issues into their journalism project. I found that you know, sometimes learning like more critical elements of our social issues, actually it's a thought provoking for the you know, journalism you know, projects. So they can be also another way that I can link my research to teaching. We have a question. Okay, yeah. Harrison? Hey. Uh, Say this question's for you. Um, so you're looking at freelancing and, and how, it's, uh, how it's working in the journalism world. Do you think that uh, through your research you'll be able to uh, maybe make recommendations for how we can update the curriculum here at Cronkite to better prepare a student body going forward? Yes, because um, I, I won't know more definitively until after this summer, but the comments I'm seeing a lot from the, the freelance sports journalists is just that it wasn't even something that was talked about. They did not have it in their mind at all. And when they did go out there, they didn't even know little things like how much should I be charging? Um, but also the, the bare bone elements of business. Like, okay, if I want to create this new, this new startup that's gonna focus on this particular thing, how do I monetize that? Do I run the whole thing myself? Should I find some people? Like, like the bare bone basics that of just feeling that this wasn't even on their radar and what kind of business course could they take within journalism that be framed in how do you deal with, you know, when your editorial side and your financial responsibilities need to come together. 
other questions? I, I got one more. Go yeah, on. yeah, no, go ahead, go, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, so Dr. Chada, you're looking at how we save local news. You're, you're like a cancer reacher for local news. What are, are, are there some positive signs? Like, what are you seeing that gives you hope in your research? Determination. Um, you see a lot of for-profit and not-for-profit news sites that launch despite the odds. Everybody knows news is not a business people want to invest in. Um, newsrooms are laying off people. Newspapers are shutting down. Um, big companies are going in losses. There was, you know, the hyperlocal network of Patch by AOL, which was so famous for its um, collapse. Um, and they've they've um, they've brought it back to life, um, and it's still sort of, uh, but it's still finding its feet. Um, despite these odds, there are folks who look at their neighborhood or their communities and go like, wait a minute, we are not being informed of important issues, and this is crucial for us. And they start those sites anyway. Um, the turnover rate is very high. It doesn't mean that that website is going to be around forever. Um, chances are it may shut down within six months, within a year. Um, but then there are some websites that continue to grow. For example, Voice of San Diego, um, or Berkeley side, or BaristaNet, which was like the trailblazer in the field. Um, that people are still concerned about informing their communities, that they still care for learning about what's going on around them so they can take informed decisions and participate in democracy. That's the good news to me, that we haven't reached a point where people just go like, I mean, you still have folks who say, I don't, like news will come to me. I still haven't heard even those folks say, I don't need news. And until we reach that point, there's always hope. It's when they start saying, I don't need news, then we have a problem. Well, you want to talk a little bit maybe about how your teaching and research inter intersects or how you, how you hope to expand what you're doing in terms of particularly student mental health and interactions here at ASU? Yeah, I'm teaching two courses. Uh, one is the audience acquisition and engagement, and second is social media communication campaigns and engagement. Um, so in, this, in these courses, the, one of the interesting things that I teach is about the psychology behind audience engagement online. Why do we engage online with Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or what? What is the reason why we share content? Why do we, why do we get into the conversations online? So I'm very interested around these concepts. And I think the solution of mental health is also lies within social media. So deleting Facebook, in, in my opinion, is not the solution. And nobody is going to do it, or they will switch to a different site. We have to find solution while remaining within this arena. So I'm very interested to explore more how we can do that. Great. Just like maybe one more question. Got one? Great. Hey, um, I guess this question is for all of you. Um, so many of you started out in journalism or studied journalism, and I know the Cronkite School is very much um, a huge um, teaching hospital type of institution. So I was wondering um, what your advice would be to any people um, looking to become um, communication researchers or professors one day. Great question. <laughs> Great question, Kelly. <laughs> um, that requires a great answer, which requires thought. Anybody else? Yeah, I think um, there are multiple ways you can become a communication researcher. One of them is to join a, join a team, join a research team, or work with us. Yeah, just come and work with us. Just say, I'm interested in doing research. So join our research team. We are always working on research. We are always doing data collection. We are always doing data analysis. We are always looking for inspiration and creativity from you. So you come join us. That's it. Yeah, I, I would, I would dove, dovetail on that. I mean, you've got uh, strong researchers are always looking for research assistants. And as part of that, it's a learning experience. But the other thing that I always encourage people to do is to really and I, I don't think this is said often enough, there are more parallels between journalism, particularly investigative journalism, and academic research 
than is often acknowledged because they all start with a question. What do I want to know? What am I curious about? Who do I talk to? What sources do I look at? What's already been done? So you can start by, you can start to be a communications researcher by doing journalism and then by working with people who are conducting more academic types of researches as well. But I want to encourage everybody to really think about the fact that there are many more similarities between investigative journalism and academic research than might first appear to be the case. And on that note, I want to thank you all for coming and thank you to our panelists for their great presentation and all their great work. And if you've got questions, I think we'll probably be here for another little while anyway. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Very much.